Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh talks about the joy we should have now because of the blessing that is to come. In this sermon, we are told why we have peace with God if we have truly placed our faith in Christ. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, The Hope and Privilege of the Christian. chapter 5. We'll be reading that here in just uh, just a moment, but I, w- I want to take a few minutes here and uh, talk just a little bit about what we're celebrating today and the salvation of children. This is a conversation that we're having just all the time. I mean, it is just regularly all the time. Uh, not only are we talking about, you know, uh, pleading with parents to make the gospel known in the home, model uh, biblical living to our children, but also parents coming and having these conversations of, when is it time for my child to be baptized? Um, so this is a conversation we're having just all the time. So I wanna say just a few words about it. First of all, if you're uh, a visitor with us or, or kind of new to the church, a question that we get asked pretty often is, why do you guys baptize the way that you do? Why do you not baptize babies, which is a you know common practice around here? And you know, it, it boils down to when you open up the scriptures and you read and you see what Jesus gave us, you know, we didn't invent this practice. Jesus gave this to us. He brought the new covenant. He gave us a sign of that covenant. He told us to go into all the world, make disciples and then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What we see scripture show over and over again is the baptism of disciples. And then the Bible describes and explains to us what a disciple is in places like Luke 9. If you want to read that sometime, Jesus explains that a disciple is someone who realizes their need of salvation, turns to Christ in personal faith, and makes the decision, I'm going to follow after Jesus. That's a disciple. And so with the only practice we see in scripture is that disciples are the one baptized. And then when they were baptized, you know, not trying to say anything cruel or anything about other practices, but we never see sprinkling. Um, We never see babies baptized. It is always by immersion. And it is always of those who had turned personally to trust in Christ. So that's why we do what we do. Um, We just kind of have this belief that if Jesus gave us a practice, we don't have the right to change it. You know, like with the Lord's Supper, we don't have the right to say, well, we're just going to use cookies and milk instead of, you know, what he gave us. We, We can't change something that he gave us there. But that leaves us with this question then of, well, then how old does someone have to be to get baptized? You know, the Bible never gives us an age. Um, in one sense, I'm really glad that he didn't because you know what we probably would have done with that. If somewhere in the New Testament, it would have said, you know, make sure they're at least six, you know, that's not saying that's my number or whatever, but if it had said, you know, wait till then, we would have made it a practice. We would demand every six-year-old gets baptized, whether they turn to Christ or not. And that would be a dangerous kind of thing. So what we're left with is discernment. We're left with discernment and a lot of humility. But I also think there's a statement that Jesus made that is helpful to us, that he established a principle If you remember on one of those occasions where herds of children were just flocking to get near Jesus, which I think, by the way, shows the beauty of his character, that children wanted to be near him. 
You had one of those times where the apostles were trying to shoo the little children away, don't bother Jesus, and Jesus stops and says, no, let the children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I think when Jesus said that, he meant more than just that one occasion, let them come to me. As Jesus very often did, he took a moment and taught bigger principles through the moment. That we're not to hinder children coming to Christ. We're not to think that they can't be born again. And he said the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In another place, he said that even adults who turn to him have got to get rid of their adultish pride and come to him with the humble, dependent faith of a child. So taking these things together, we try to use discernment. A lot of times we as the church leaders, we kind of rely on you parents. What do you think? Do you think they understand the gospel? Do you think they're ready? Do they show some evidence that they have turned to Christ? And if we believe so, we don't want to hinder them from doing that. So we want to be cautious. We don't want to be manipulative. We don't want to say to kids, well, you know, now you're eight. It's time to get baptized. It's not the way it works. They must personally turn to Christ. But we want to encourage that. And at the same time, just tell them, I'd cut off my right arm right now if it meant you would turn to Christ, but I can't make you. That's got to be you responding to the gospel. So today we're so thankful to celebrate more souls entering the kingdom. And let this just be another reminder to us parents, don't ever stop making the gospel known in the home, which is where the biggest work of the gospel in their little lives happens. All right. Romans chapter five. Let's turn our attention there. So we're entering a new section of the book of Romans, working our way through. We're going to read the first 11 verses, but our primary subject to the truth today comes from verse one. So as we read it, pay close attention to that. But let me kind of tell you what to look for here. What the book of Romans is explaining is here's the good news of salvation in Christ. Here's how you could be made right with God. The early chapters were telling us why we need to be made right with God. This, this thing, this biblical term that's used, justified. Why we need to be justified. We've sinned, we're unclean before God. Chapter 3 then explained, here's what God has done to pay for you to be made right with God. Jesus' work of the cross. Chapter 4 was all about, here's how you get it. So Jesus did these things, but how do I get it? You get it by turning in true, trusting faith. Not your works, not your righteousness, faith, trust. Chapter five then enters this section of verses one through 11 showing here are the benefits of justification. So your Bible may have a little subheading that says something like the results of justification. So be looking for that as we read through it. So let's begin in verse one. We'll read it and then I'll pray. Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask. It seems so simple as we sit here, just seems like a little Bible study. God, your word tells us there's an absolute war raging in the heavenly realms over what happens in these moments. And so, God, I beg, win. Show us every truth. I, I just pray, God, that there will not be a soul in here that is unaffected by your truths. Cause every single one of us to see, understand, and then be changed in whatever way we need it. Your sons and daughters gathered in this room, bought by the blood of Christ, they have turned to Christ, been justified. God, I pray that you will bring us to what you want us to, that the hope, the richness, the joy, the peace, the knowledge of your love to us, this grace where we stand in, God, I pray that it will overwhelm us and turn into fuel that then leads us, oh God, to live for your glory, sacrifice, obey, pursue holiness, share the gospel, be willing to die for the gospel. Please, God, bring this about. But God, any, anyone in this room that has, is still resisting, still relying on their own goodness, Father, I, I pray that you will show them your grace, and that they'll be overwhelmed by it and draw them, O oh Lord. Please awaken someone to faith this morning. Please bless and protect this time. Help me to do what needs to be done to teach and be faithful. And we ask all these things through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Nicholas Ridley was one of Bloody Mary's many martyrs. This was still in the early days of the Reformation. So this is 1550-ish. And in her zeal to crush the Reformation, to squash this movement of the gospel where souls were being saved and in by her own lips, her, her zeal to give all allegiance to the Pope in Rome, she gathered up 277 believers and burned them alive. The story of Ridley's journey to faith in Christ is another one of those remarkable stories of conversion. It'll have to be for another day, or maybe you can look it up on your own for time's sake. But the night before Ridley's execution, which I know it's gruesome, but try to imagine. Being burned alive at the stake would be a pretty torturous way to go. Imagine what you would be feeling on that night before it was going to happen. Imagine some of the panic that might come. 
the racing of your heart, the sweats that you might feel, that, that sleepless and agonizing torture that you might have just even in anticipation of thinking of what would come on the following day. Well, the night before Ridley's execution, his brother came to him and intended to stay the night with him to try to you know, keep him company, give him some sort of camaraderie on this surely sleepless and agonizing night. To which Nicholas replied, it was not necessary. He would go to bed and sleep as quietly as he ever did in his life. He knew what Charles Hodge called that sweet quiet of the soul that comes from confidence that you are at peace with God. It reminds us of that example that Jesus left us that time in the boat when the storm came upon them and lifelong fishermen grew terrified. The storm was so intense and there's Jesus just <laughs> sleeping in the boat, showing this picture of absolute calm quiet, complete trust, complete confidence in the midst of it. No fretting, no worry, just peace. Ridley's companion in martyrdom also demonstrated a similar gospel-founded peace. It's recorded that Ridley's fire did not burn properly and that meant that it took longer to die. So he burned for a longer period and was in agonizing pain to which another believer being put to death for his faith, a man named Hugh Latimer called out to him and encouraged him by saying, be of good comfort and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. It's an it's an understatement of just outlandish proportions, but still we say it and we must say it. There is no greater blessing that exists than that of being in Christ. The true Christian who has realized his uncleanness has seen that God has provided a way of salvation and has come to God for forgiveness of sins through Christ. That Christian has priceless and immeasurable blessing. I know you expect to hear a preacher say that it's Sunday and you're at church, but it don't mean it ain't true. There is no blessing that is greater than that of being in Christ. And even for the brand new Christian, that Christian who enters the kingdom of God 60 seconds after entering the kingdom has every bit as much inheritance as John the Baptist. On another day, we'll talk about rewards and degrees of honor that God is going to give for obedience and effort and sacrifice and fruit. But that citizenship in heaven, that eternal life, the standing, the position that we have in Christ, the moment you enter, you have every bit as much inheritance as the apostle Paul. But the salvation that Christ brings to the believer is not primarily about blessing that we get now. 
The focus of what scripture is always showing us is on the glory of what will be. So the glory of being a Christian, if we say that it's immeasurable blessing, the blessing we're talking about is not that God suddenly becomes intent on making sure winning lottery tickets float by your path in the wind. God is not intent on making sure you get the house you want, the car you want, the college you want, the job you want, the promotion you want, your kids win all their ball games and everything's just peachy every day. In fact, the Bible explains that often he intends to do the opposite. That through hardship and difficulty, he intends to build you up in Christ. And oftentimes being a Christian means more difficulty, not less. The blessing's not about here. The blessing is about what is to come. The glory of what God has in store for his people, but... There is meant to be blessing now as we consider what is to come. And that's sort of what's happening here in Romans 5. There's a double focus here. What we're being shown is here is the richness of what we have because we've been justified by the blood of Christ. Here's what we have in Christ. It's, it's a quick little passage. It'll be expounded upon more later, but in, a, in an 11 verse beautiful summary, there's an overview of what we have in Christ and it's all about what is to come. But here, here's the part of the double focus it brings it to bear on us now. There's a message to us now from what we will have then. And the message is this. Take joy, Christian. Rise up in strength. Don't you walk around defeated and slumped shouldered. You have a salvation so great the angels wish they could have it. What God has in store for you in Christ is greater than what you can imagine. This hope is yours. This hope is certain. Live in hope and joy and peace and strength and security. Press on to live in obedience. Die for the gospel. Press to holiness. Sacrifice. Risk. Because what you have is great. That's kind of the central idea of the passage. The benefits, the blessings, the privilege, the hope of our justification. Now, if you've not been with us in this, in this uh, study, the Bible uses this word justification here in Romans to talk about that, that moment that you are made right with God, where you pass from, I'm alienated from God, I'm not right with him, to suddenly in a moment, I'm made right with him, by turning in faith, not by your works, not by anything you do, not by your religion, but by personal trusting in Christ. At that moment, you are justified with God. And so we've seen this book show us our need for it, how God accomplished it, how you receive it, and now the benefits and blessings. So that's the central idea. In this passage, there are 10 benefits of justification that are shown to us here. Now, as I usually say, when a nice round number comes about, I didn't come to the text and think, man, somehow I got to find 10 benefits here because 10 sounds nice. Though there just are 10 that are here. So let me list them off to you and, and, and encourage this. You might consider underlining each of them in the verses. You might consider writing this list in the margin of your Bible so that for the rest of your life, in a quick 11 verse passage, there is fuel for your hope. 
and confidence in Christ. So here they are. Number one, peace with God. Number two, you stand in a position of grace. Number three, hope. Number four, we can exult in our tribulations. Number five, we are specially loved by God. Number six, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Number seven, we are saved from the wrath of God. Number eight, we are reconciled in relationship with God. Number nine, we have assurance of eternal life. And number 10, we exult in knowing God. If you couldn't write fast enough, I'll be happy to give those to you after the message, but that's what we will be walking through in the next however many weeks it takes to walk through. We're only making it through one today, so probably going to be something like 11-ish weeks to get through the passage. We'll just go however fast we can to work through them. But here is this first one we'll consider. Because of justification, we have peace with God. Let's start by making sure we just understand the statements that are made here, the, the language that's used. So look at verse one again. See the word therefore. Uh, as you're studying the Bible, it's often pointed out to you, the word therefore usually is showing us this, the truths that have just been shown to us help us understand what's gonna come next. So the next truth is built on what just came. And we very much see that. The truths of justification, therefore, here's what we have. So therefore, then here's the next phrase, having been justified by faith. Notice the verb tense that's used there. This is saying that for the one who has turned to Christ, something has happened in the past that is continuing to have effect on you now. And you notice the language that is used there. This is something that we saw previously, but I'm just pointing it out again to you. Having been justified, notice this just very carefully, justification is a one-time event that happens in a moment. It's a declaration. In other words, justification is not a process, which is the way salvation by works. When people think of it like that, it's always a process. Like I'm getting closer to God or I'm, I'm earning my way to heaven. That's not the way real salvation comes. It is given in a moment. In one moment, your condemnation is taken care of and erased. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, something to help us understand though, as we continue in Romans, some of this will be later, there are parts of your salvation though that are continuing. And this can sometimes be confusing because there are some places that will refer to the Christian and say, we are being saved. And sometimes the Christian go, well, wait a second. I thought that was taken care of in the past. Well, justification was taken care of in the past. No condemnation, but there are things that God is still doing in salvation of his people, even presently and continually. What is happening right now, if you have been in Christ, what's happening right now, God is saving you from the power of sin in your life. And then the Bible will speak of a will be one day that you will be finally and fully saved where it's completed and finished. So just kind of keeping all of those things in mind right there. Therefore, having been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God. And then notice the last phrase. It's used all the time. These are kind of these little phrases we can miss when we're just kind of reading quickly. But it's intentional. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. All the time emphasizing we do not have access because of our own selves, goodness, righteousness, religion, whatever. It is only through the Lord Jesus the Christ. You must attach yourself to Christ. You must be in Christ. You must be in covenant with Christ. You must have received his benefits and grace. Your only hope is Christ. And we just see the New Testament use that language all the time. In him, we have peace with God. But here's another critical question for us to understand before we go any further. Who's the we? We have peace with God. Who's the we? Is this just indiscriminately used of anybody who reads the passage? Anybody who hears the passage? Anybody we apply it to? I was talking with a member of our church here in the last couple of weeks who had a, a gospel conversation that I'll bet is very similar to some that you've had. Sharing the gospel with someone who didn't believe what God said. They picked and they chose the parts of the Bible they liked. They refused repentance, were living in rebellion, refused to come to Christ like we're shown, but yet claimed the promises of places like Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so the great question is, who's the us? We have peace with God. Who's the we? Some of the worst of this happens at funerals, right? I mean, just some of the worst things imaginable happen at funerals. Over and over and over again, what we see is these uh, list of promises from the Bible are read, which is great. Let's do that. Let's celebrate them. But then they're applied just indiscriminately to everybody, including Uncle Bob here in the casket. And I'm not trying to be irreverent in any way, but this is reality. Including Uncle Bob here who hated God, hated everything about Christianity, lived in rebellion, never accepted anything that God had to say. But hey, nothing could separate us from the love of Christ. We have to see who the us and the we is that scripture speaks of here. Who's the we? When the Bible talks about this, this is just all the time over and over. Look at verse one. And every place that you see this kind of language, there's some way in the text, if you read before and after that, showing you who has these promises. Who is the we in verse one? We who have been justified by faith. Let me get specific with you this morning. Some of you have peace with God and some of you do not. I'm not saying that to try to be mean, but that's reality. You refuse the justification, the salvation that God offers. You can't then claim to have peace with God. He's offering it to you and you're saying, no, I'm good. I'm already righteous. He's saying, no, yank. You need this. You can have peace with God before you walk out these doors this morning, but not so long as you reject what he says. You must embrace Jesus by faith, knowing that you need him. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the we. Guys, that's all the promises of God in the Bible. All the promises are for the people of God. You become a part of the people of God in Christ. And if you hear all this, 
and you still say to yourself, you know, this is nice. I believe that there's a Jesus, you know, but come on, preacher, this weird salvation that you're talking about. I, I just want, listen to Hebrews 2.2. 2. If the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and that was referring to the Old Testament law given at Sinai, God caused angels to speak that to Moses. And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you want to believe that there was a Jesus, do some religion, but you keep rejecting this salvation, you keep saying to yourself, but I don't really need it because I'm fine. You need to understand what the Bible says. The Bible says God is offering a gift and you are saying no. You must embrace this to have peace with God. But those who do, not because there's anything special in us. The whole concept of faith is I'm not great, but I believe God and receive this. Those who do or will be brought to a place of peace with God. But what kind of peace is this? Because you know, there are different kinds of peace. There's peace in relationships. There's kind of that technical peace between nations who have been at war. There's peace that we feel in our hearts. What's, what do we have with God? What kind is it? And the answer is Jesus's work of redemption brings us to every kind of peace, but in this passage, what is in view here first is what we might call a legal peace, an official kind of peace. So, so similar to like whenever we were talking about the word justification, that in Christ we're counted as righteous, that we are legally, we even use the word forensically righteous and then God begins a work that we become practically more righteous by day by day life. And then one day we'll be all the way made righteous, that process right there. But it begins with this technical, official, legal righteousness. The same comes with peace. Like nations who have been at war, their official peace comes when they sign a peace treaty. Well, guys, in one sense, we might think of the new covenant that Jesus brought in his blood as, as a covenant of peace, a peace treaty. We enter into covenant with God and are brought to peace by entrance into that. When those two nations sign that, they agree to official peace. We're going to stop fighting. I'm going to stop attacking you. We're no longer at war. We're no longer enemies. Well, the new covenant established on the blood of Christ brings us, it brings us to be legally righteous, no longer held guilty for our law breaking. We've been forgiven. And so watch this. This is really important that you see the steps here and the foundations that are laid. If we are no longer have a sin problem, when the sin problem is taken out of the way, then and only then we can be at peace with God. We got to see that one, each of these is built on the other. You cannot be at peace with God and yet be under the wrath of God. You cannot be at peace with God and yet you are standing in line to enter hell. Your name is on the list of those who are going to receive punishment for your sins. That's not peace with God. But once the sin problem is taken care of, now there's access to have peace with him. God will not fellowship with he does not hold peaceful relationship with those who are under his wrath. 
with those who are evildoers. And the Bible says we're all evildoers. But in Christ, there is forgiveness and therefore peace that we have with him. And if we have legal peace with God, then that means the door is open for other kinds of peace. So for instance, we can talk about a peace that we have in relationship with God. There's a peace that will be one day in the kingdom to come. And then if we understand all of those things, we can have peace right now that we feel. A peace that we experience internally because I know where I stand before God. But we first have to understand this legal official peace. And we won't understand that until we understand that there was a time that we were not at peace with God. So for every one of us Christians, if you're at peace with God right now, you weren't born that way. We are not born into the kingdom of God. We must be born again into the kingdom of God. You were not born at peace with God. We must come to peace with God. The Bible shows us that we are born with a natural tendency of, okay, here's a biblical word, enmity. Enmity means, all right, if you have an enemy who hates your guts, okay, his disposition towards you, that's enmity. Another word the Bible uses is hostility. Turn to Romans 8 for a second, if you will, with me. Let me show you this word used. Romans 8, find verse 6. Look what it says here. For the mind set on the flesh, pause there, that's another way of speaking of those who won't turn to Christ. The thoughts are just entirely on how do I get my most out of this life? How do I get happy here? The whole focus is here, 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 not on God, not on the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Want proof? Look what he says next. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so because of its tendency, its leaning, its inclination. We are naturally evil on our own. We're not even able to please God on our own. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is where a lot of the greatest opposition to the Bible comes in. God is saying that if you do not turn to Christ, you're hostile to him. And I, and I know this is oftentimes the argument that then comes. Look, preacher, just because I'm not turning to God how you say doesn't mean I hate God. Doesn't mean I'm hostile to God. You're calling me like a Satan worshiper or something. That, uh, I'm not like that. I just think that I'm a pretty good person and I don't need this weird salvation that you're all the time talking about. I'm good. I go to church. Me and God, we're fine. It's oftentimes the response when the Bible will say that you're an enemy of God apart from Christ. <coughs> let, me, let me just give two responses to that way of thinking. The first is this. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And if you hold that view, you are rejecting, I'm going to say about 600 of them for sure. I mean, at least in that many chapters of the Bible, you, you cannot read the Bible for 15 minutes without coming to see that we're not right with God where we are on our own. 
You cannot read the Bible and honestly see that just over and over again. It's message is you're not okay, but God has made a way. Here's the way, turn to the way. It's Jesus over and over again. That's the message of the Bible. Ephesians two says you're dead in your sins before Christ. You follow the way that Satan wants you. Now pause there. The Bible doesn't accuse you of being a Satan worshiper if you don't turn to Jesus, but it does say this. You're living the kind of life that he wants you to. Not to the extreme, not, the, not to the lengths that he wants to bring you. He's still working on you. But you are living the kind of life that he wants you to. Ephesians 2 says you selfishly live for your own pleasure and are children of wrath. That's, that's biblical language. Jesus said that in our natural state before we repent, we are of our father, the devil. In the adoption that comes in salvation, we leave him as our spiritual influence to now God is our father. First John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the trap of the evil one. Part of the trap is thinking I'm not in the trap. The Psalms say that God is angry with the wicked every day. For one, see this friends, God's real character is different than how the world is always talking about him. All your stupid country songs, all the stupid little chit chat of the world talking about God is the big grandpa in the sky who don't care what you do. That's not the one true and living God. The one true and living God is holy. He is righteous. He is committed to righteousness. He has a law that is good and righteous and he expects his law to be kept. When his law is not kept, there is punishment. We have all done that, including the Christians in this room, but the big difference that brings us into a new people and a new standing and relationship with God is there's a forgiveness that God offers. Christians are those who receive the offer of forgiveness and turn. So even just biblically speaking, you can't believe the Bible honestly and hold that view that I don't really have to turn to Jesus to be saved. But secondly, just even just using reason, friends, it is amazing to me how often the world always wants to, in a spoiled sense of entitlement, say that God has obligations to me, but I don't have obligations towards him. I can live how I please, but God's job is to bring me to heaven. And if you think in that way, in that scenario, you imagine God is your servant. Listen to me very carefully. You got the universe backwards. You have intrinsic obligations to obey, worship, and love the one who is worthy, the one who gave you life, sustains your life, and the one you are going to stand before in judgment. You are not born at peace with God in our natural state we are at a place of hostility with God. Our hearts are hostile to him. And then listen very carefully. Because of our sin, unrighteousness and rebellion to God, he is hostile toward us. And that's not mean. That's not cruel. That's just. He is not a weak, wussy, wimpy king. He does have hostility towards the rebels in his kingdom. But here's what the cross has done. If you want to turn to another passage, Colossians chapter one, I'm going to read verses 19 and 20 there. I'm going to kind of skip through some of it to make the main point there. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Let me read it here. It was the, speaking of Jesus, it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness, fullness of deity 
to dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him, watch this, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, there that is again, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you, you Christians, in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. Jesus has made peace by the work of the cross, three ways that he's done it here. The first way that he has reconciled all things to himself is like this. Does that mean that everyone, everything, even Satan is going to be brought to love God? No. But one way that a king can get peace is by hunting down the troublemakers, bringing them mightily into subjection, and then there's peace. They don't love him, but they're at peace because they are no longer able to go around and cause chaos in his kingdom. The Bible says this is one of the ways that Jesus is going to bring peace. His death and resurrection drove the mortal blow, the final nail into the works of the enemy. And now we are living in this time that God is drawing souls to himself and bringing peace in the second way. And then there is coming the day that God is going to finally and fully bring all of his enemies into subjection. And so all things will be reconciled to him in one way or another. But this is the hope of the gospel. It's the second way that he's made peace you who turned to Christ, the condemnation that you deserved, he took on himself. Jesus bore the wrath and the anger of God on himself. He was counted as if he did those things. And so because there has been a righteous and just way for forgiveness to be offered, God can then be peaceful towards you. But then here's the third way. The text said, you who were formerly alienated and hostile in mind... He reconciles you to himself. How did he do that? Well, we got to bring in some other passages here, places like John 3. How did he reconcile us to himself? So I was hostile to God and God was hostile to me. The cross has brought away for God's hostility to be appeased, peace for him to have peace towards me. But still, if nothing else happened, I don't yet have peace towards God. What Christ has done is made a way through the new birth. What conversion is, is an awakening, an opening of eyes, a change of mind, a change of heart, where we are turned from hostility to in a miracle of God, he stirs a friendly heart towards himself, a friendly heart that trusts him. Friends, part of the new birth is God awakening, opening the eyes to see the beauty and the glory of God, to see myself as I truly am, to see God as he truly is. And so I stop the selfishness of my hostility. And for the first time, I feel I need him. I want him. And a friendly heart is created. That's faith. Faith is like we say so often. It's not just acknowledging the existence of God. It is the trustful, friendly 
heart towards God. Jesus has accomplished peace in all of these ways. You who hear this, you can be brought to peace with God right now. If you will turn in your hearts, believe, cry out to him. But understand this one way or the other, you're coming to be reconciled even if it is by subjection, but grace is offered to you. But at the moment of faith, we come to peace with God legally. A peace treaty has been enacted. And then if there is legal peace, then that opens the door for all kinds of other peace. Let me just kind of list off a bunch of random stuff that the Bible says, random scriptures. You can jot some of these down. John 14, 27, the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, he said this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. What kind of peace is that? That's a peace of relationship. And then he says, don't be fearful. Experience that peace in your heart. John 16, These things I've spoken to me so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Let me read to you one from John 20. And if you want to join me there, you can, because there's one point I'd like to make with, you can see with your eyes. John 20, starting in verse 19. So Jesus has accomplished redemption on the cross. He's risen from the dead and he's now appearing to the apostles. Watch what he says, John 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace be with you. Now we're reading that and that can kind of just sound like a, a greeting. You know, hey, how's it going? Peace. I'm submitting to you he means more than that. And watch this and I think it'll show it. Look at verse 20. And when he had said this, when he said, peace be with you, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. What's the point going on there? Peace be with you. He gives them a greeting. They don't get it. He shows them the scars of the cross and says, no, you don't get it. I'm bringing you peace. Peace from God the Father. I accomplished peace with my blood. I have made it. I have done it. There is peace with God because of this. He repeats it. All of this is how we can have relationship with God. And because of this, the New Testament then takes us into many kinds of other places. Colossians 3.15 says this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What does that mean? means the peace that we have because of what Christ has done, experience it internally. Feel it. Be at a place of trust and dependence that you have confidence in him. And then the Bible goes on right after that verse to talk about our peace with one another. So think about the point that's being made there. The peace that Christ has made with us and we have treated him horrendously, let that be the fuel and the motivation for how we live at peace with others, including the difficult ones, including the ones that are hard to be at peace with. It was hard for God to be at peace with us. We are not easy. We're hard. Let that be motivation to forgive, be long-suffering, patient, 
gracious, and to live at peace. So what you constantly see is scripture uses the peace that Jesus accomplished with his blood as the grounds then for confidence in other things. God is bringing you Christian to a kingdom of peace and the assurance of what will be is meant to have effect on us right now. It's a whole other sermon, how there will be peace in the kingdom to come. If you want to look at just one place, like not now, but sometime in your own study, the book of Isaiah has a lot to say about it. Book of Isaiah is pretty amazing in that it was spoken 700 years before Jesus came. God gave Isaiah a message and then he was to go preach the message. The warning is given that God is going to bring judgment on that southern kingdom, as you know, we'd read about by Babylon and all those kinds of things. And yet all through that book, God constantly talks about what will happen when the future Messiah comes, Jesus. And he talks about even at the last days when he's gonna create new heavens and new earth and bring the new kingdom. So all through the book, this is there in chapter two, he says that the citizens of that kingdom will take their swords and beat them into plowshares, which is a poetic way of saying that in the coming kingdom, there will be no need for weapons or violence. In chapter 11, he says that the Messiah will bring righteousness, he'll rule in righteousness, and that this will accomplish peace. Because think about it. Every single thing that brings stress, war, violence, bloodshed, abortion, rape, backstabbing, betrayal, all of it, it's all the natural outflow of sin. There will never be absolute peace so long as sin is in a kingdom. Jesus is coming to remove all sin, all unrighteousness, so that there can be peace. So in chapter 11, where he says that, that righteousness will be brought in, then he finishes up that chapter by saying, then the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. A child will play by the hole of a cobra and will be in no danger They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The book of Isaiah ends with God addressing the wicked who resist him. And he says that they have misery and destruction that is coming, but my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. He goes on to call the covenant to come, the new covenant, the one we're in now in Christ, a covenant of peace. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus is our peace. Acts 10 says that the message of Christ is the gospel of peace. Hebrews says that Jesus is the king of peace. He is bringing real and actual kingdom of peace, you in Christ will live in peace. Forever experience that sweet quiet of the soul. That doesn't mean like taking it easy, by the way. That doesn't mean like boredom. When people talk about heaven and the kingdom to come, you get a lot of misunderstanding and just downright craziness that comes. You get a lot of those comments of things like, you know, up in heaven, I'm just going to sit by the lake and drink beer all day. You don't get to create your own heaven. (laughs) But secondly, then there are others who have this idea of heaven because they've heard things, they've heard churchy things. We've got to really be careful about what we say. 
They've heard some of these churchy things. Maybe they've only heard the part about peace and quiet. And sometimes churches say some weird things like, uh, you know, in heaven, all we're going to be doing, just, just praising Jesus and singing for all of eternity. Where's that in the Bible? I mean, yeah, we're going to be doing some pretty heartfelt singing. I'm looking forward to it. But that ain't all. We're going to live, laugh, rejoice, exult, dance, drink sweet wine flowing from the mountains. Some of the churches need to repeat that part as well. But it will all be without stress, without anxiety, without fear, without that, that, that uneasy weight of burdens that we feel at night when we're trying to go to sleep and worrying about what's to come the next day and all the things that come. God is going to remove those weights and burdens and we will walk into the kingdom and breathe a sweet sigh of quietness and peace. You will live in shalom. God is bringing you Christian to peace. You are at peace with God right now. So here's what that means for right now. Feel it. Let's live it. Let's fight the chaos and stress and anxiety. And I know that that can sound oxymoronic. Fight to have peace. But that is the way it works. You do got to battle for it. This doesn't come automatically. We don't just get this instantaneously. Like it does require work and maturing. And the more our faith grows, the more confidence we have, the more we will feel and experience this peace. We got to reason with ourselves. We got to ask ourselves these questions. Why am I so unsettled? I'm stressed and anxious. Why am I? And believe me, I'm preaching hard to myself here. Why, if God is working absolutely every millisecond of my life for my everlasting joy, then what do I ever have to be stressed about? As I lay in bed and worry, you know, because worry is kind of like borrowing fear from the future. Why do I, why am I fearful that what is to come in the future won't be good when God says he's working it all for good? But that's what we have to convince ourselves of. That's what we have to come to believe. And when we strive there is what Philippians calls a peace that passes all understanding, meaning the world can't wrap their minds around how we can have it. The world can't understand Nicholas Ridley's and Hugh Latimer's who die violently with peace in their hearts. But the gospel can bring it. God wants us to bring it, but we must believe we must trust, we must fight for it. And just lastly, the greatest application for you if you're not trusting in Christ as your only hope, I beg you, don't ignore this. You gotta come to realization that biblically speaking, if you reject the salvation Christ offers, you're not at peace with God. John three thirty six says, he who believes has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son is under the wrath of God. The wrath of God abides on him. If you are not yet in Christ, when God looks at you, he is not smiling. There is a frown, but it can be changed in a moment. Believe, even as you sit here before I'm about to pray here in 10 seconds, you can be made right with God and that can be changed. But believe, look to Christ, call out to him.
Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you for what you've done in bringing peace. And God, all of our hope is in the fact that you are reconciling all things to yourself. Father, I pray for us Christians. I pray that we will live and experience that peace in us. I pray that it will be fuel for us to be kind, gracious, loving, merciful to one another. But God, any here that is still not yet right with you, please draw them. Please awaken them. Bring them, O Lord, to trust you. Bless us, God, as we're heading out to the lake for the baptisms. I pray that it'll be a sweet, sweet time of fellowship and the meal shared together. Please help us, O God. We ask all these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. And we hope that this week's message titled The Hope and Privilege of the Christian had an impact on your life. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.